Welcome to the lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper today, and we begin with the health lead. The CDC is now projecting the U.S. could see up to 200,000 total deaths in a matter of weeks. The U.S. has continued to average over 1,000 deaths every day for 18 days in a row now. Take that in. California just became the first state to mark 600,000 cases. And Florida and Georgia lead the nation in the number of new infections per capita. In fact, the White House Coronavirus Task Force has even urged Georgia to adopt a mask mandate, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. As CNN's Kyung Law reports, it comes as schools and families grapple with the realities of reopening. It was terrifying. It was my worst fears had come true. That's how this Georgia parent ends a traumatic back-to-school week. Her child quarantined, like the more than 2,000 students, teachers, and staffers across five states. At least 230 positive COVID cases now reported from schools. The head of the CDC says reopening schools can't be done quickly. Yeah, we don't want to pressure anybody. Our guidance is there to help them begin to open, as I said, safely and sensibly. The timing of that is going to have to be decided one school at a time. Given what he's seen, this Arizona teacher says he's quitting. We weren't given the option to teach from home, no. It's, it's a small room, there's one exit, There's the ventilation isn't all that great for schools. And so it's just, it's not a good situation. But the Trump administration continues to insist schools reopen. The radiologist tasked to back up the president's own theories is driven by this belief. We know that the risk of the disease is extremely low for children, even less than that of seasonal flu. We know that the harms of locking out the children from school are enormous. While COVID does rarely kill children, they can infect their homes and community. One state pushing schools to open while resisting a statewide mask mandate is Georgia. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution obtained White House Coronavirus Task Force recommendations stating there is widespread and expanding community viral spread, and it would strongly recommend a statewide mask mandate. The spread of COVID in California is slowing, but the state reported a grim marker, more than 600,000 cases, the most of any U.S. state. The numbers are very high, and they're actually much higher in underserved and, uh, and disproportionately affecting uh, people of color and Latinos here in California. Nationwide, cases are trending down in most states, seen here in green. But in the last week, the U.S. reported more than 360,000 cases, enough to fill Atlanta's Mercedes-Benz Stadium more than five times. And the death toll continues to stand at more than 1,000 lives lost every single day. In three weeks, predicts the CDC, between 180 and 200,000 Americans will have died from COVID. I'm old enough to have been a baby during World War II, but I remember how the country absolutely pulled together. We pulled together after 9-11. This is equivalent to that, Matthew. We've got to pull together. And we're learning this guidance from the CDC. Updated guidance that if you get COVID and you recover, the CDC guidance now says that you do not have to quarantine or get tested for three months. Pam, it is only, though, if you're not showing symptoms. Mm -hmm. Pam?
All right, Kyung Law, thank you so much for bringing us the latest there. And I want to turn now to Michael Osterholm, the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Michael, great to see you. I want to Good start to with again. what we just heard from Dr. Scott Atlas, who we know is an advisor to President Trump on coronavirus. He was talking about young people. Let's listen. Young people are not at risk for a serious disease from this. If you look at New York City, of the, of the uh, 19,000, roughly 700 deaths in New York City, people under 18, that's 13 of them. And there's only one child, which is very tragic, of course, I'm a father myself, but there's only one child that was otherwise healthy out of all of those deaths. It's really a very low risk here. According to the CDC, it is true that people under 18 have a lower risk of getting hospitalized or dying from the virus, but there has been a 90% increase in the number of COVID-19 cases among children in the U.S., and at least 90 children have died from the virus. How do you describe the risk for young people and their role in spreading this virus? Well, thank you. First of all, we have to understand that we're calling children, everyone basically under 20 years of age. And uh, for this uh, disease, that's not really helpful. Um, right now, we know that kids under age eight or nine do act very differently than do their older siblings who are in junior high or high school. And we do see fewer cases. For example, uh, here in the state of Minnesota, we've actually had our child daycare centers open all through the summer and we have not seen any problems whatsoever in that area uh, hmm. that would be of major public health concern. So I understand that while we surely can handle the younger kids and potentially bring them back to school when communities are not themselves on fire, the older kids, i.e. the adolescents and the young adults, are very different. Mm -hmm. their, their situation is they do have a higher risk of some severe disease, although still low. But what their real risk is, is bringing the virus to the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. I worry very much about what's going to happen post Labor Day as our high schools, our colleges, and our universities come back together. We're already seeing evidence of widespread transmission, even in the earliest activities. I think they pose a great risk to our communities. Yeah, I mean, there's two aspects of this, how sick kids can get and how they transmit. I know as a mother of two children, how often, you know, my, my toddler son would bring home germs and I would get sick all last year. I was sick constantly. Um, and, you know, you heard Dr. Atlas talk about the flu, saying that fewer kids have died from COVID than the flu, which is true as of now. Is that a fair comparison, though? Well, I, any, I guess any comparison you can say is fair or unfair. All I would say is I don't think it's helpful. I think the challenge we have is getting information to parents and to educators about what we might expect. I think that it's fair to say what, what, what we know now, younger kids, kids under age eight or nine, will in fact transmit less. They will not see as many, nearly as many problems as those older. Where I concentrate my big concern right now for our communities is in adolescents and, and, and senior high school kids, young adults. At this point, that's where we're going to see a lot of the transmission that mm -hmm. could pose then a risk to teachers. It could pose a risk to other members of the community. That's what we need to really work on right now. Right. And there's that study out of South Korea showing that, that um, young adults, like you pointed out, are just as likely as adults um, or nearly as likely as adults to transmit. You wrote this op-ed in The New York Times, I read, and this is what it said. Uh, you said, in order to save lives and save the economy, we need another lockdown. Do you really think Americans can tolerate another lockdown? Because as you know, Dr. Fauci has said, it can be something in the middle. It doesn't have to be binary. 
Well, I am not sure that that's the case. Let me just say that uh, right now the best evidence we have is until we keep people separated enough so that we can really slow down transmission, at best we have a lukewarm response and we kind of do it, just like we did last March, April, and May. We kind of did it, a slowdown, not a lockdown. If you look at the other countries of the world that really kept people apart until they drove the virus level down to less than one case per 100,000 population per day, they are the ones that basically have largely been able to reopen, even though they're still seeing cases and they're still dealing with it, they have a very different situation. So my response is to those that say, can we do this or not? You're right, I understand completely. But in that same op-ed piece, we laid out the economic issues and talked about how we have to hold America whole. All the workers, all the small businesses, city and state governments, and mm -hmm. we can do that. We can afford to do that. I think the most important message is, if we don't do that, we are going to be talking about potentially over 100,000 cases a day. Mm -hmm. We're going to see this country bleed slowly to an economic death, and that's what we have to understand. So we have a choice. You can pay me now or pay me later, and it's doing it now is going to save many, many lives and actually in the long run has a much, much more uh, positive view on the economy outcome. So you don't think that the mitigation efforts, social distancing, wearing a mask, you don't think that that's enough right now? You think that the, the country needs to go into total lockdown to get this pandemic under control? Well, let me just ask you. I mean, you've been watching all of this, as, as every other American, for the last uh, months, and you saw what happened just uh, within, within recent weeks of these large, large case numbers around the country. We still are seeing cases increasing. Uh, and I think that the challenge is, is that uh, uh, right now we're not even getting close to driving it down. I think what we're going to do is probably level off at f the high 40s, low 50,000 cases per day. And then post Labor Day, we're going to have an explosion of cases. It's going to go much higher than the 65,000 cases a day. That sure doesn't look to me like we're doing much, even though we have been preaching distancing. We've been preaching right. masking. We've been preaching responsibility. Have you seen what that's done yet? So I want to look at the other countries because you did mention that other countries implemented the lockdown, their cases went down, but now we're seeing a resurgence um, in several countries, particularly when you look at Europe. So what do you think then? Would a lockdown then be necessary until a vaccine is created? I is that the only solution here? Well, see, this is a, uh, an example of uh, using the brake appropriately. What I mean by that is you got to tap a little bit, you got to let it up a little bit. There's actually a wonderful op-ed in today's New York Times from a leading researcher in Great Britain who basically pointed out the fact that what Europe did is they did lockdown, they got it down, they had it down, and then they said, well, just like America, hey, we'll just let it go. And what happened is they loosened up very, very quickly. And so now in the last three weeks, we've seen increasing cases. They're already having this same discussion in Europe mm -hmm. we're having here. The difference is they are order of magnitude lower in case numbers. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to deal with 6,000 cases than it is to deal with 60,000 cases. And so uh, I think that you're going to see them actually tightening up issues in Europe, again, as you said, to get us through to a vaccine. All right, Michael Osterholm, thank you so much for that really interesting discussion. Thank you. Well, up next, the Trump administration testing czar joins me live to discuss why he says the U.S. does not need to be conducting millions of tests a day. Plus, multiple states receiving new warning letters from the Postal Service about the election, what it could mean for your votes. 
Well, the number of coronavirus tests nationwide may be declining, but Admiral Brett Girois, a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, said people should not get hung up on the number. You beat the virus by smart policies supplemented by strategic testing. You do not beat the virus by shotgun testing everyone all the time. And I'm really tired of hearing it by people who are not involved in the system that we need millions of tests every day. So right now, about 700 to 800,000 people are being tested daily. But Dr. Ashish Jha, the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute, says the U.S. should be conducting four to five million tests daily. I don't know why Admiral Gerard thinks that we are doing plenty of testing uh, when literally no public health expert I know of in the entire country agrees with his assessment. And I want to bring in Admiral Brett Giroir to discuss all of this. Thank you for coming on, Admiral. Uh, really, thank you for having me on this afternoon. I want to start with your response to Dr. Jaw. So you think testing is where it needs to be right now? Well, I, I really felt compelled to come on this afternoon after hearing Dr. Jaw this morning because just about everything he said was the opposite of what reality is. Um, and that really troubled me. And I want to make sure the American people understand where we are and where we're going. No, we're never going to be satisfied with testing. We need to do more. We need to do more different kinds. This morning, it was a uh, discussion about the vulnerable. We don't test the vulnerable. We're ignoring the wildfires in the nursing homes. Nothing could be the opposite of true. Not only have we prioritized nursing homes, not have we, only have we done guidelines, but the administration announced that we are delivering point-of-care tests to every single nursing home in the country that has a CLIA waiver. That's over 14,000 of them that were going to be done by the end of September. How much more aggressive can you be on testing in nursing homes than that? Uh, Dr. Jha said we're only focusing on testing the sick, the symptomatic. I'm acting like a doctor, not a public health person. Again, the opposite of true. 90% of the people we test are asymptomatic. We send surge sites. We've sent it to 13 different jurisdictions in the last three weeks just to test asymptomatic people who could be spreading the virus. Hmm. Um, that's what we're talking about. So I, I want to make these clarifications. Right. And finally, what I talked about um, um, is, you know, after Dr. Jha had been on TV so many times, he never once contacted the administration. I called him up. I said, look, if you have ideas, uh, of what we need to do or justify it, please tell me. Mm -hmm. uh, I realize that these, the same generalizations get said over and over again without a justification. Yes, we want to increase testing. There is no physical way to do 5 million tests per day in this country. If there is a way to turn it from 1 million to 5 million today, let me know. We're investing in new technology. We're providing new EUAs. We're investing heavily into point of care tests. Everything that we can do to increase the testing capacity of the country. If there's something this administration is, that is true? not doing. I mean, has the administration used, exhausted all of the executive authorities? Um, look, if you look under DPA, as the president touted today, he's used it so much. Has the administration actually exhausted it to get more supplies like reagents and tips and other testing supplies to the labs? Is that true? Everything's I'm, been done? I'm going to say definitively yes. Definitively there is, yes. There's nothing else the administration there, if, can do to get more well, testing. You'll, you'll hear a DPA action coming up early next week. Okay, uh, and what will we that do? Well, we continually use DPA and in investments. Every day, the DOD, the NIH, uh, FEMA, myself, we sit down and discuss, is there an investment we can make? Is there an order that we can rate? And we've done many of them, from uh, $120 million but into it's swabs. it's not enough. I mean, would you say enough has been done? 
enough has been done Every, to make sure that everyone who needs a test gets a test in this, in this country? Everything that can possibly be done has been done. If somebody has an idea, and I mean this, we have an open testing forum. We've opened it up to multidisciplinary groups. We met yesterday. We met two weeks ago. I'm on the phone constantly. If there is a good idea, I want to hear it. We use investments. We use the DPA. We do everything. So, you know, and I kind of feel okay because when Dr. Ja comes on TV and attacks whether I care about this country and my patriotism, I figure if you have to stoop that low, the rest of the things must be doing okay. Look, there, there's no doubt um, as the leader in this country on testing that, that you're working hard, that you want to uh, make sure Americans get tested. But when you look at the numbers, Dr. Zhao, we are six months into this pandemic, and yet the positivity rate is still above that key marker of 5% in at least 33 states. At least 33 states have a rising positivity rate. You said 90% are asymptomatic that are tested, but doesn't don't those numbers show that the there's a real problem here? You stop the virus by instituting smart policies. Wear a mask, watch your distance, and wash your hands. You've said Arizona, that so many times Arizona. though, but hold on. Testing, all public health experts agree that testing is a very important part of the component yes, of- Yes, absolutely. It's an important part. I agree okay, 100%. Okay, so like, it's part of smart if you policy, test, If no? you test people, it's of course part of smart policy. That's why I look at Arizona. They only meet 13% of the metric that Dr. Jha has, but they have over 21 days of decreasing cases, dramatic drops in hospitalizations because they had smart policies supplemented by extra testing. Are you concerned in sent. states like Arizona, because Arizona is one of the several states across the country that has a decrease in cases, but also a decrease in testing. So are you concerned that could be a, a, a warning sign that people just aren't going to get tested because they don't want to have to wait so long to get their results back or wait in line? So there are three questions and assumptions there, and all of them are wrong. I'm asking you. I'm not assuming anything. I'm just telling you. I'm t looking at the numbers. That's right. You're and I'm telling asking me. a question. You're not asking me. You're telling me. I'm looking at the numbers, and I'm asking you a question based on the numbers. So let me answer based on the numbers. We believe the cases are down, and that's real because hospitalizations are down, COVID-like illnesses are down. This is a real decrease in in the infections. Number two, in terms of turnaround time. We had a problem with turnaround time. There is no question a few weeks ago, we've had multiple different actions, both Quest and LabCorp, which was the source of the turnaround time issues, but are now under three days. So that turnaround time issue is not there. And we sent specific Wait, surge testing into Phoenix. Yes. It sounds like you're passing the buck to the to the to these private laboratories. And by the way, Quest said just last week the average turnaround time is seven days. Okay, so the uh, this ones- week, This week, have you checked this week? It's two to three days okay. because of all the but different how much policies of that, and implementations. The two to three days though, how much of that is dominated by people in the hospital who get the, those category one patients versus people out in the community who are more likely to spread the virus? Uh, zero. Do you have the uh, breakdown? Zero because the normal, yes I do, the normal turnaround for normal patients is two to three days and LabCorp is one to two days. We work with them, I talk to them multiple but times a week. But that's not the reality on the ground. Like people we've been speaking to consistently say they're waiting sometimes more than a week for, to get their results back. So, so, so let me tell you, people you're speaking to, I get the data from all the labs, uh, millions of tests each week, the time they're ordered to the time they're resulted. I am not disputing that there's gonna be a lab here, here or there, or there's a private lab somewhere where turnaround time is long. We're attacking this on multiple fronts. By next month, we'll have more point-of-care tests than we have laboratory tests. That's instantaneous results. Number two, we're doing all types of technologies like pooling, like different extraction methods that increase efficiency. 
I said publicly I will not be happy until everybody can get a result within 24 hours with the dominant being point of care. By October and November, we're going to have tens of millions of point of care, probably over 50 million point of care, compared to only 20 or 30 or 40 million laboratory tests. It's going to be dramatic, and we are going to use that to support things like school opening. But the ideas that were said this morning, that we are not trying to expand testing or believe testing, wrong. That we're not shielding the nursing homes, mm -hmm. wrong. Um, that we are, you know, that we're not testing uh, uh, asymptomatic people. It's just not true. Look, we have a long way to, we've come a long way, we have a long way to go, but the picture was painted in a completely opposite of what reality is. Um, and again, yeah. I'm happy if somebody has an idea to increase testing to 5 million tomorrow, I want to hear it. Everybody knows that. I've okay. called Dr. Ja to get his ideas. I, I talked to him. Dozens of people. I have every someone week. who I can actually bring in right now um, who can add to this conversation, and that is my colleague, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, thanks for joining us. You know, one of the things we didn't get to is uh, is the administration ready, right? Um, Sanjay, is, as a parent who's decided not to send their child to school, is the administration ready for the onslaught of schools and colleges being back? Sanjay, what do you want to say to that? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the, the idea of assurance testing giving people some assurance that they don't have the virus, that people around them don't have the virus. I mean, I think you'd agree, Admiral, and I, and I sense your frustration. I think you'd agree we're nowhere near that yet, and it seems like you don't think that that's a good idea. But I, I, I do just want to come back to what I think is maybe the most salient point here, Admiral, and I just want to make sure I understand, because I'm reading now what you said from before, and you said the winning strategy is to basically have quick testing of anyone who is symptomatic and any of their contacts. Uh, you just told Pamela that you're doing a significant amount of asymptomatic testing. Uh, which, which is it, Admiral? I'm, I'm, I'm a little they're, confused. No, no they're um, both. Because it they're, is very hard both. for asymptomatic people to get tested. No, they're, they're both. Um, um, I have to look at the numbers, but it's something like 80 or 90 percent of people being tested in our community-based testing sites are asymptomatic. They're either contacts or they're worried well. I believe, of course, and the data say that we do need to test asymptomatics, particularly when there are uh, in outbreak areas, and that has to be large numbers. That's why we're doing that. And, and we've sent uh, teams to 13 different areas. We support asymptomatic testing. So we do need symptomatic and contact tracing. We do need asymptomatic. That is what we have been doing and will continue to do. And in terms of schools, Sanjay, I absolutely support surveillance testing. Um, uh, Francis Collins and myself, Seema Verma, were on the phone with uh, literally uh, 500 individuals from universities, provosts, VPRs, from all the university systems to turn on the non-CLIA university platforms to provide surveillance to universities and to schools and businesses. And we're working aggressively to create technologies that we believe will be ready within the next six weeks that will be point of care in the tens of millions, very simple and very cheap. We can't create that out of nothing, but of course we're working to support those strategies. Um, what, what, is, um, okay. what I want to get uh, out is that we are actually doing these things. Uh, it's not what was said before, that we're not. We're not protecting the vulnerable. We are. We're testing asymptomatics all the time. This is all part of our strategy, and the strategy is working. 84% of jurisdictions are in a downward trajectory. Only three are in an upward trajectory out of 56, and that is Guam, Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico. The rest of the country is stable or in a downward trajectory. We cannot stop what we're doing, 
We cannot stop. We have to keep pushing. How can you say, I'm just curious, how can you say it, it's working, though, when the average death is around 1,000 a day still and the percent positivity is up in at least 33 states? So um, it's a very good point, and I'm glad you asked that. Um, deaths are a lagging indicator, and we see this, and it is tragic. And being a lagging indicator is no solace for people who have lost their family members. But what we see is percent positivity generally starts going down, and it has across the country. Um, then the cases start going down, the hospitalizations start going down. All those three things have happened on a national level. Uh, deaths, unfortunately, and it is tragic that they're going to be up this week and maybe next. But if the trends continue, if we do wearing a mask, watch your distance, wash your hands with smart strategic testing, including surveillance testing, including testing of some asymptomatics, particularly in the areas, this trend will continue and deaths will decrease. Sanjay? But we've got to keep doing that. Got to keep doing that. Sanjay? Look, I think the frustration, uh, Admiral, is that we, uh, you know, so many months into this, you're talking about, on one hand, you want to have all this assurance testing, you're working with technology to, to, uh, to develop this. Uh, you just said yesterday that you can't test your way out of this. I think what's confusing, Admiral, is sort of hear two different messages. I agree with you. We need some big technological breakthroughs and this assurance testing. It can be done. I, I know you agree with that. This technology can be developed. And we're not talking about a fantasy. I think the frustration that people have is that why haven't we done this yet? There does seem to be this minimizing of testing. And I got to be candid. You sort of seem like you were minimizing testing yesterday again. You're, you're, you're striking a different tune right now, which is great. No. But you were minimizing testing. You did talk about just focusing on symptomatic people yesterday. So I no, I've, I've never, and, and I'm sorry if that's w the way it was interpreted, but we've never, ever talked just about testing a, a symptomatic people. Uh, we want to increase testing. I spend every day trying to increase testing. What I want people to understand, though, is that testing is not the panacea. It is not the answer. It needs to be in a supportive strategic role where we do it in layers. Yes, we test the sick and hospitalized. Yes, we test the vulnerable, okay. not just nursing homes, but underserved minorities. Yes, we test asymptomatic, particularly when they're outbreak areas. Okay, thank and you yes, so we much, need to Admiral support school and Sanjay, reopening. Unfortunately, we have to go, but that was a very lively, robust, and important discussion. Thank you so much, Admiral, for coming on. We appreciate it. Appreciate and we'll be it. back. Well, President Trump will be back on the campaign trail for the first time since June with visits to three swing states next week. And if the past few hours are any indication, he is coming with fuel for his base. As a fellow Republican slams a racist, baseless conspiracy theory, Trump floated about Kamala Harris. And also we're learning that the president praises a Republican newcomer who's no stranger to conspiracy theories and bigoted comments, as CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports. The conspiracy theorist-in-chief is back at it, okay, refusing to knock down you. a pair of baseless conspiracy theories from the White House podium. Green has been a proponent of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, she said it's something that should be would be worth listening to. Um, do you agree with her on that? Well, she did very well in the election. She won by a lot. She was very popular. Today, Trump standing by his praise of a Republican congressional candidate who supports QAnon. Q is a patriot. We know that for sure, but we do not know who Q is. Declining an opportunity to dismiss a conspiracy theory that is popular among some of his supporters. We have QAnon and her decision to embrace that, that conspiracy theory. Do you agree with her on that? That was the question? Go ahead, I just want to... 
Just yesterday, Trump gave oxygen to a baseless theory about Kamala Harris, the first black woman to run for vice president on a major party ticket. So I just heard that. I heard it today that she doesn't meet the requirements. Uh, and by the way, the lawyer that wrote that piece is a very highly qualified, very talented lawyer. I have no idea if that's right. Harris was born in Oakland, California, and constitutional law experts are rejecting this theory as nonsense. But for Trump, this is old hat. He may not have been born in this country. I would like to have him show his birth certificate. So far, Senator Lindsey Graham, a close Trump ally, is the only Republican senator to quash doubts about his colleague's eligibility to be vice president, tweeting, under the Constitution and Supreme Court precedent, she is unequivocally an American citizen. But Jared Kushner, the president's top advisor and campaign consigliere, is taking a pass on debunking this birtherism revival. He just said that he had no idea whether that's right or wrong. I don't see that as promoting it. But look, at the end of the day, uh, it's something that's out there. She was born in Oakland, California. Yeah makes her a qualified candidate. As Democrats hold their national convention next week, Trump is returning to the campaign trail with counter-programming stops in three battleground states. And Pam, President Trump just arrived at New York Presbyterian Hospital where he is visiting his brother Robert Trump, who has been hospitalized. We're told that he is quite ill. Uh, the president uh, also posted about that uh, on Twitter, and he appears to be linking even that visit to the 2020 campaign, uh, tweeting about his visit with the cover of a New York Post story in which the president said that he believes he can win New York in the 2020 election. Pam. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much for that. And turning now to our 2020 lead, today Joe Biden and Kamala Harris signed the papers to make their partnership official as the Democratic 2020 ticket. And their focus appears to be on coronavirus, spending $44 million on ads over this week and next. They released two ads today on the pandemic after calling for a national mask mandate. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins me now. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. So recent polling is showing the vast majority of Americans actually align with Biden's call for a national mask mandate. Pamela, that's right. You can see the numbers right there. This is a Fox News poll showing 74% of Americans do indeed favor a national mask mandate, only 21% opposing there. And this is something that has changed really of the course of this uh, summer as the pandemic you know, has uh, settled in and worsened some. So, you know, the Biden campaign, the former vice president has been uh, saying that he would urge governors across the country to impose a three-month mask mandate. So this is something that is in line with the mainstream of American thought. People from both parties, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, of course, more Republicans are opposed to this, but there are some who do indeed support it. So Pamela, this is clear. The president is on the wrong side of this, which is you know, obviously why we hear uh, him you know, essentially all over the board saying sometimes that uh, he supports the use of masks, but that certainly mm -hmm. has not been a central theme there. But this is a central core message of the Biden campaign in television as well as in their uh, public messages. And you can be sure it will be next week at their convention as well, Pamela. Yeah, we heard the president say today, yes, you should wear a mask if you can't socially distance, but there hasn't been consistency there. And I'm curious, have Biden or Harris responded um, to Trump's comments? Uh, no, they haven't, uh, particularly the, the comments about the uh, whether uh, Senator Harris is indeed uh, qualified to uh, run for president or, or eligible. She certainly is. The campaign has uh, responded saying it's absurd. But Senator Harris herself said this is why she is running to defeat President Trump. This is why she's She's running alongside of Joe Biden, but uh, they did not take questions on that specifically uh, today. Ironically, it's interesting. If you look at the, the last of several Republican uh, nominees, John McCain was born 
I'm outside the U.S. Uh, Mitt Romney's father was from Mexico. There's been very uh, little discussion on that front, of course, but there is still mm -hmm. discussion about Senator Harris, which simply is uh, this ongoing plan of the president's to divide this country yeah, on this respect. Call it for what it is. Jeff right. Zeleny, Not thank true. you very much. Sure, Pamela. A quick programming note now, CNN's special live coverage of the 2020 Democratic National Convention starts Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Well, as President Trump rails against the safety of mail-in voting, his campaign is racing towards a key court deadline tonight to prove he's right. That's next. Breaking news in our 2020 lead, a big warning light coming from the Postal Service. Mail delays might mean mail-in ballots will be delivered late. So late, they might not make it in time to be counted in November's election. In a letter to governors, the agency warns it expects to see a pileup of mail around Election Day. And as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us, that may be why Democratic leaders are now encouraging voters to mail their ballots by late October. Republicans are racing toward a Friday night deadline to turn over evidence that proves their claims of mail-in voter fraud in the Pennsylvania primaries. It will be a pivotal point in a critical battleground state. The Trump campaign has sued to demand changes to Pennsylvania's mail-in balloting process, but now a judge is making them prove there are problems. Democrats say Republicans should not be permitted to raise such spectacular fraud-related claims, particularly in this national climate. President Trump has repeatedly claimed mail-in voting leads to widespread voter fraud. I said it will end up being fraudulent because if you look at what's happened over the last few weeks, just look at the few instances where this has happened, it's turned out to be fraudulent. But CNN's fact-check team has consistently debunked the claim. New Jersey is just the latest state to adopt universal mail-in balloting, where ballots are automatically mailed to every registered voter. That makes nine states, plus Washington, D.C., that will now give all voters the option to vote by mail, and most also have in-person voting, known as a hybrid model. Everybody gets a ballot, so we're going to have a hybrid model in November. Meanwhile, some voters in Virginia, New Hampshire, and D.C. say they are increasingly confused by election information they're receiving in the mail. In D.C., there were erroneous instructions, and in New Hampshire and Virginia, the mailers contained errors in the return address. Would you be willing to accept the $25 billion for the Postal Service? This, as the fight over funding at the U.S. Postal Service continues, with a new letter from Postmaster General Louis DeJoy obtained by CNN, showing that the Trump appointee and longtime Republican donor acknowledges some of the recent changes have had unintended consequences impacting the level of service. But DeJoy says the cuts are necessary, since the USPS's financial condition is dire. Staff hours have been cut, and CNN obtained documents that showed a proposed plan to remove hundreds of high-volume mail processing machines from facilities across the country, just as mail-in ballots are expected to flood through the Postal Service. The USPS has also sent letters to several states warning them their mail-in deadlines are too close to Election Day and they might not get delivered in time, since first-class mail can take up to two to five days to get to a destination. People will have to go to the polls and vote. Like the old days. The president has admitted that he opposes new funding for the USPS because he does not want widespread vote by mail. But when asked today if he'll sign a bill that includes new funding, he said, Sure, they give us what we want. And it's not what I want, it's what the American people want.
And we've just learned that the internal watchdog for the Postal Service is now reviewing some of these recent changes from the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, which includes the elimination of overtime, also the service slowdowns. The Inspector General for the USPS will also look into DeJoy's compliance with federal ethics rules. Now, this comes after lawmakers from both parties have called these changes in service disruptive, but Pamela DeJoy has repeatedly denied that these changes are meant to disrupt service. Instead, he says that they are necessary because of the financial situation the USPS has been in. Pamela. All right, we'll keep digging on that. Thanks so much. We appreciate it, Jessica. And joining me now, Laura Coates, a CNN senior legal analyst who specialized in voting rights enforcement at the Department of Justice, and Kim Whaley, author of the book, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. Thank you, ladies, for coming on. Uh, this is such an important topic as we you know, head toward the election. And Laura, the Colorado Secretary of State accused President Trump of voter suppression. Is that how you see it? Well, certainly he's trying to suppress people's ability or their confidence in the voting mechanisms that have been in existence for a very long time, particularly in Colorado. There's been all male for quite a number of years now. And so when the president is offering up these reasons that have not been founded in any evidence to try to discourage voting when he hasn't given an actual reason why mail-in ballots are different than absentee ballots, why he alone and other members of his cabinet, including Pence, including Wilbur Ross, have, including Azar, who've actually voted by mail in some form or fashion over the number of years, why they are in a lone position to be able to vote and everyone else mm -hmm. is fraudulent when his own prior commission has not found widespread evidence of fraud. All of this is really odd. And you add that to now a political donor who is trying to revert the post office into the Pony Express inexplicably a few months before we all have to rely on it. This is, this is really what you call sort of a covert and um, and very obvious form of trying to get people not to vote. Yeah, it's interesting because there have been these re repeated attacks on mail-in voting, but the president and, and the first lady, Melania, just applied for their vote in Florida. But, you know, the, the president, Kim, has said that there's a difference between uh, Republican states and, and the way they run the system and Democratic states. It seems like he's trying to make some distinction there. But you wrote an entire book on the importance of voting, and we've heard the president's repeated attacks on mail-in voting and now complaints from voters who are getting confused confusing instructions in the mail. Do you worry this could be used to undermine the election results? I'm worried about the election on many, many fronts, including this one. Look, we're in the midst of a pandemic and it's going to be difficult for people to vote in a way that's consistent with their health. We will see polling states, states uh, places close, um, long lines, etc. And now uh, the president is essentially manufacturing a crisis in the Postal Service, which which is in the Constitution itself. It's as, about as American as anything. A manufacturing a crisis, so putting Americans in a catch-22. Can't go to the polls because the polls are not available to you or you could get yourself sick. And uh, the flip side is we're going to not only criticize unfairly mm -hmm. mail-in voting as fraudulent, but actually gut the Postal Service, which of course a lot of Americans depend on for medicine, for paychecks, for basic services. Um, this is a an absolute assault on democracy itself. Uh, it is a nod to authoritarianism. It is very, very, very troubling. And I should just say, the biggest study done on, on 
fraudulent voting from 2010 to 2014, out of 1 billion ballots with a B, 31 uh, uh, examples of potential fraud. And that's because fraud is pretending you're someone you're not. And it carries a five-year prison sentence in federal court. That's different from this is just complicated and difficult. The states mm-hmm. need money and the president won't give them the money. But, but Laura, what would you say to um, to the Trump campaign that says, look, th- th- yes, there it has been done in states, right? But this is on a whole nother scale that this country just isn't prepared for. And also, um, you know, they, they make the argument, the campaign makes the argument that people could send in their ballots um, well before, you know, they have all the information that they might need about the candidates. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, the Trump campaign and any campaign who's suggesting that people need more time to decide who they'd like to vote for is just oddity of itself. We know that people are very, very entrenched and have really decided a long time ago or are looking forward for more opportunities to get information, not misinformation, like they kind of be suggesting right now. And also, Pam, when I was in the voting section, I mean, the idea that the that the states are somehow slacking on their ability to get ballots to people, there's a whole body of law called UACAVA, where we actually send ballots to people on the front line at one point in Afghanistan, the ballots were able to get to them and be returned in time. And you have an instance where you're saying you can't get it 10 miles away from wherever the campaign or the post office is. That's actually a fallacy. And finally, when it comes to the idea of voting in America, remember, the GOP had previously done things to try to roll back opportunities, including early voting access, that could have been able to use and had the foresight to look at even the unforeseen pandemic. And so when you cut off your nose to spite your face, it's the nation that actually suffers. All right, Laura Coates, Kim Whaley, thank you so much. And coming up, thanks, but no thanks. What Russia said the U.S. just denied. Up next. And turning now to our world lead, Russian officials say they have offered to help the U.S. with the coronavirus vaccine. But the American government said, no thanks. Russia claimed to have the world's first COVID vaccine earlier this week, but the country has released no testing data to back that up. CNN's Matthew Chance joins me live from Moscow now. So, Matthew, one American health official tells CNN, quote, there is no way in hell the U.S. tries this on monkeys, let alone people. Why is there so much distrust? Yeah, I know. I mean, that sounds like a definite no, doesn't it? It's not. I'd that's say. not a maybe. I mean, look what the what the Russians say. That's right. What the, what the Russians say is that look, they've been in, they've essentially made contact uh, with the uh, OWS, Operation Warp Speed, of course, the multi-agency body uh, that's been set up to accelerate access in the U.S. to a COVID vaccine. They've also been in touch with U.S. pharmaceutical companies, but at the moment, they say there is you know the, the U.S. is not open, in their words, uh, to kind of taking hold of that of that Russian medical technology. There's a general sense of mistrust, they say, about these medical technologies developed in Russia. And it's because of that mistrust that the vaccine is not being adopted. Well, of course, there is a good reason for that mistrust and that concern, namely that there is no clinical data that's been made public uh, by the Russians about the efficacy of this vaccine. They haven't completed crucial phase three uh, human trials, which means you know, you don't know whether it's effective or, or even whether it's 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 safe. And as I say, and as you said, you know, that uh, U.S. public health official sort of underlining sort of how deep that mistrust is wouldn't even you know, give it to monkeys at this stage. Uh, never mind humans. I mean, you know, that just you know, says a lot about the U.S. attitude towards what Russia proclaims as a world's first, the world's first coronavirus vaccine. And Russia quickly is claiming some U.S. companies are interested in learning about that vaccine. 
do we know who else might be interested? Yeah, a, cu a couple of US companies, they say, though they haven't named them. But I mean, look, I mean, the Russians say there's a billion doses of this vaccine that have been ordered already around the world. We know that the Philippines is, is very interesting. In fact, the Filipino president uh, said that he wanted to be the first in the country to try it. We know that Mexico, Vietnam, um, Brazil, uh, all, all these, these other countries. And so I see the, the flip side of the United States and European countries not being interested in this Russian vaccine is a lot more of it will be left uh, for, for other countries in the world. Hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Matthew Chance and Russia for us. We appreciate it. And be sure to tune in to CNN this Sunday for State of the Union. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Cory Booker all join Jake Tapper 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. And I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper on this Friday. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.